passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, church. Uh, it is great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, this morning is our final week in the book of Colossians, and you might be saying, well, uh, couldn't you have planned this out better and finished right before Christmas and start a new series with a new year? And the short answer is no, we couldn't. Uh, we, uh, we wanted to spend a little bit more time in the book of Colossians before next week, spending a couple weeks in, uh, starting next week, starting uh, at our, the other facility, we're going to be uh, spending some time in the book of, of Philemon. Uh, Philemon is a, is a great book. It's actually a letter that is written to one person, a leader in the church in, uh, in Colossae. And so uh, very, very uh, relevant and natural for us to jump from Colossians right into uh, Philemon. As we finish this book this morning, I do think it's appropriate for us to remind ourselves of the context of this book. Colossians is a book that is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written while Paul is in a Roman prison. Paul is a man who desired to bring the gospel to the very ends of the earth, and now he's unable to leave his prison cell. This is a man who has been arrested in Jerusalem, held captive in Caesarea, and now has been brought from Israel all the way to Rome uh, via ship and a couple shipwrecks in order for him to await trial before Roman authorities. We don't know how long he's been in prison in Rome, but after some time, at least a few months, uh, someone unexpectedly shows up. It's an old ministry partner named Epaphras. And he brings news of one of the churches that Epaphras planted. It's been years for Paul since he's seen this man, one of the students that he had raised up and trained and then sent out during his ministry in the church of Ephesus. Paul had sent, uh, had sent Epaphras out with a mission to plant churches in the middle of modern-day Turkey in a place that's called the Lycus Valley. And he did exactly that. Epaphras planted a trio of churches in this valley called the Lycus Valley. These are the churches of Hierapolis, of Laodicea, and of Colossae. At the beginning, things were going as well as you could possibly hope in these churches. They faced very little persecution. There was an eagerness from the community to embrace the gospel, the message of salvation. And those who became Christians began to grow very quickly in their faith. But at some point... At some point in the early stages of the church's life, some wrong beliefs began to sneak into the church. We're not sure of their origins, but this teaching said that Jesus wasn't good enough to experience the full salvation that every human heart longs for. This teaching said that Jesus was but one way of many for us to accomplish the meaning and significance that our hearts desire in our lives. And so Epaphras, this man who has planted these churches, who has, has given his life for these churches, is heartbroken. And he knows that he can't answer this by himself. And so he decides to make the long journey to Rome, over a thousand miles, with the hopes that Paul will be able to help him address this problem. Months go by as Epaphras is traveling to Rome, and as he finally gets there, he pours out his heart, he pours out his concern for the church in Colossae and the surrounding communities. We see Paul's own heart on display here in this letter. 
Paul is a man who is just as concerned for these churches that he has never met before. And surely after a time of prayer, Paul takes a pen and some parchment and he begins to write down the letter that we have before us in the Bible. He sent it back with a man that we are going to be introduced to here in a few moments. It's the letter of Colossians. Paul writes that in the face of a culture and a false gospel that tells us that Jesus is only one way among many, Paul tells us that Jesus is the supreme king of the universe. There is nothing that exists in all of creation that wasn't fashioned by Jesus' hand, that Jesus is the ruler, the king of all creation, and through his victorious death and his resurrection, he has guaranteed us a new creation as well. And Paul takes this deep theological truth and then he twists it or turns it and applies it to each of our lives applies it to the lives of the Christians in Colossae. These people who have been adopted into the family of God, he tells them that they are now inseparably united with Jesus, the supreme king of the universe, that they are now eternally secure in the work that he has accomplished for them on the cross. And it is because of this inseparable relationship with him that we are able to find spiritual riches. Paul writes in Colossians that if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to find lasting peace no matter your circumstances, if you want to find rest and contentment no matter how chaotic and frantic and busy your life may seem, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It is this connection between the Christian and Christ that Paul describes as the mystery of the gospel, that we are now united with Christ. In Jesus, in the Messiah, God is doing something new. He is now uniting his people to his son for their salvation and their sanctification. It's from this place that Paul addresses various battlefields or or areas of our lives where we will find this difficult for us to live out. Places where our growth as Christians will be tested. He looks at tensions that are found in the church, struggles in the home, hard work in the workplace. These things are so important to Paul that he takes the time and he he addresses each of them and how, how it would look for us to be clothed with Christ in each of these settings. And after that, having addressed the false teaching and how the gospel applies to our lives today, Paul draws his letter to a close. His current situation, remember he is sitting in a prison cell in Rome, is on the forefront of his mind. And so he asks the church for prayer. Surprisingly, he doesn't ask for prayer for his release, but instead he asks for the proclamation of this mystery of our union with Christ. He asks that it would be clear while he is in prison. In essence, Paul is asking the church in Colossae to partner with him in the spread of the gospel. And the exact same thing is true for us today. As Paul closes this letter, he ends with one final description of how we, each of us as Christians, can be clothed with Christ here and now. 
how each of us as Christians can participate in the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he shares that there are two ways for us to participate. Let's take a look at Colossians 4 this morning and see the calling that God has given to each of us to participate in the spread of the gospel. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here we see the first words that Paul has for how the church is to participate in the spread of the gospel. The first thing that Paul asks for is for prayer. He says that one of the ways that they participate in spreading the gospel is through prayer. And so it is for us this morning as well. I, each of us, participates in the spread of the gospel through diligent prayer. Ian Bounds was a pastor from the 1800s, and he described the importance of prayer for the spread of the gospel when he wrote this. One of the key components of the spread of the gospel is prayer. Without prayer, the gospel can neither be preached effectively, spread faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life. When we leave prayer out of our calling, we leave God out, and his work cannot progress without him. Paul describes this prayer with at least four qualifiers. First, he tells us this prayer must persevere. Prayer can be difficult. We can go for long seasons in our life without God seeming to answer, where it seems like God is not at work, where God is not moving, at least to our perception. We can grow discouraged during these times. We can think that prayer avails us nothing. And indeed, that's exactly the air that our culture encourages us to think. We breathe it in each and every day from our culture. We are on our own. There is no God, and if there is, he has left you to figure out all of life on your own. And yet, the annals of church history are filled with example after example after example of the great work that God does that only comes after perseverance in prayer. George Mueller, a famous missionary from the 1800s, was sent from Germany to the UK, founded a number of orphanages in Bristol. He was also known as being a man of prayer. He tells the story of how he prayed for two men for 50 years, that they would come to faith. For 50 years, he prayed consistently for them. Shortly before Mueller died, one of them became a Christian. And he continued to pray up until his own death. Shortly after his death, the other one became a Christian. The Moravians a group of people from Eastern Europe were known for their commitment to the spread of the gospel through missions. They're known or responsible for evangelical churches throughout the globe. The Moravians are also known for a prayer of urgency and perseverance. History tells us that the Moravians had a prayer meeting that once lasted for a hundred years. 
individuals of the church community set aside one hour each day around the clock for a hundred years without stop to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, for the labors of missionaries across the globe. Perseverance in prayer is crucial for the spread of the gospel. And this word on perseverance, just just pause for a moment. Is there a greater need for the church in America than to hear this charge? To hear the charge to persevere in prayer. If in Jesus' generation there were many who were guilty of long-winded prayers, thinking that God would hear them because of their many words, our generation needs to be reminded that God is likewise not impressed with our brevity which is just a facade for our negligence. In his book, Praying with Paul, Professor D.A. Carson describes the importance of this word for us to persevere in prayer today. He writes this, quote, In the Western world, we urgently need this advice to persevere. For many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring the front doorbell and run away before anyone answers. End quote. How foolish would it be for a child to approach their parents and ask for a warm cooked meal, but then lament their parents' lack of answer before their parents could even start up the oven? In the same way, our Amazon Prime, instant streaming on Netflix, not Netflix, smartphone in the pocket culture fools us into thinking that anything that is worth having is worth having now. Paul's words to us are very clear. Continue steadfast in prayer. James was right when he wrote in James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And yet, perhaps a more appropriate way of saying that for us today is you do not have because you do not continue to ask. If God has called every single one of us to participate in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, and he has, then we are all called to persevere in prayer. But we are not just to persevere in prayer. We also must be watchful in prayer. Or perhaps a better way of, of saying this is that we are to be alert in our prayer. Paul is writing to a church that is under siege from the culture that wants to take the gospel and water it down, make it into one religious path among many. They want to take the supreme king of the entire universe and make him a part of their pantheons of gods. The assault is the same way today as well. Our culture has no real problem with Jesus, or at least their perception of who Jesus is. What our culture takes issue with is the exclusivity of Jesus. We must continually be alert, like a watchman, standing guard in the night for the purity of the church, for the purity of the gospel. What specifically does that mean for our prayer? Well, for starters, it, must, it means that we must be sensitive to the things that are a distraction from the gospel. Things in our lives, things in the surrounding culture that distract us from the gospel. But even more than that, it reminds us to actively pray concerning these things. Prayer should be watchful and alert. Third, Paul tells us that our prayers must 
flow from thanksgiving. This heart of thanksgiving is a crucial counterpart to the heart that is watchful. It is all too easy for us in our watchfulness, in our discernment to become cynical, bitter, pessimistic in prayer if we are not also thankful. We must be both discerning and thankful. It is so important for us to begin our prayers the exact same way the psalmist begins in the Old Testament. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And for us to be true to the words of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, to set our minds, set our hearts on the things that are above, we should not just thank God for the many material blessings that he has given us, but thank God for the spiritual blessings as well. Thank God for the way he is at work in your life even now. Thank God for how he is painfully but faithfully ripping the anger out of your life by teaching you patience. Thank God for how he has answered your prayers for the salvation of a friend, of a coworker, of your children. Thank God for a sermon or a song or a conversation that was much needed. Begin taking a, a, keeping a prayer journal so that you can know how God has answered the prayers that you have written down. And thank him for those things. Our prayers must be thankful. Last qualify, qualification of this prayer, or description of this prayer, is Paul's request for prayer for himself. Paul has been in prison for a few years now. First in Caesarea, now here in Rome, and yet he has not grown discouraged. He has not grown discouraged with the charge to spread the gospel even though he cannot leave his cell even though it doesn't look the way he expected it to look. And so he asks the church to pray for God to open a door for him to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, this could, re- this could mean that he's asking for them to pray that God would release him so that way he could continue his missionary efforts throughout the Roman Empire. But much more likely is that he is asking God to open doors of opportunity while he is in prison in the midst of his current circumstances. Indeed, this is how Paul prays or or thanks God in the beginning of the book of Philippians, Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul adds an additional word to this request for an open door for the gospel. He says that they should pray that he is able to make the message of the mystery of the gospel clear in his communication. Paul doesn't want to distract. He doesn't want to confuse people in the mystery of the gospel and the message of the gospel. He wants to take the glorious riches of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and put them on simple display for all to see. And so he asks for prayer. This is the fourth piece of of a prayer that participates in the spread of the gospel. It is to pray for those who proclaim the gospel. It's to pray for people like me. 
to pray for me every Sunday morning, to pray when we approach God's word, to pray on Sunday mornings when you're getting into the car as a family, that God would be with us as a church, that you would be receptive to the message that God has for us, whether it's around the breakfast table, whether it is while you are driving to church, that we would be clear in our exaltation of Jesus. Pray that God would bring our church to mind and pray for our church. Pray for our church throughout the week. I'm so very thankful for our gatherings on Sunday mornings because without a doubt, someone prays for the sermon every single morning. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your church. Pray for our Spirit Lake campus that is doing the exact same thing. Pray for the other pastors in the community. Pray for your family members' pastors that your family members would be given a bountiful feast from the word of God. Pray for our missionaries, that they would be clear in communicating the gospel across cultural barriers. Prayer is essential for the spread of the gospel. Many of us may be familiar with the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a British missionary to China in the 1800s. He later founded one of the world's greatest or largest missions agencies, during his time in the 1800s overseeing this organization, there was one particular center in China that was experiencing much more fruit, that was much more effective in their evangelism and their outreach and reaching the gospel, or reaching the community with the gospel. And so they began as an organization to look at the differences between what this center was doing and what all of the other ones were doing. And what they discovered is there were no discernible differences in devotion, Everyone loved Jesus. In ability, everyone had been called. The culture wasn't significantly different either. This was a mystery to the people. On one occasion, while Hudson Taylor was in Britain, he was raising support for this missions organization. He encountered a man after one of his talks, and the man began to ask him questions about that specific center. The man began to ask uh, very personal questions about the team that was located there, showing or betraying that this man knew someone on the team. And so Hudson Taylor asked, well, do you know anyone that is at that location? The man said, yes. Turned out that his old college roommate from several years earlier was the chief missionary at that location, and he had committed himself to pray for that mission every single day of his life, and he had done so dutifully for the last several years. Hudson Taylor later recounted that he instantly knew the reason why that branch of the organization was so successful. Not every Christian is called to preach, but every Christian is called to pray for those who preach. Every Christian is called to pray for the message of the gospel to go out, to ask that God would use the offerings of the words of his servants to bring heart change. You can, and indeed you are called to participate in the spread of the gospel through diligent prayer. Paul gives us a second charge. In case we think that prayer is the only way that we have to or we are called to participate in the spread of the gospel. Starting in verse 5, Paul mentions another way for us to participate. Starting in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you, how you ought to answer each person. 
Here, Paul is closing his letter and he gives us a second charge that we participate in the spread of the gospel through our faithful witness. We participate in the spread of the gospel through our faithful witness. How you live your life here and now will provide you with opportunities to share the gospel or to tarnish the reputation of the gospel. Consider briefly just three words here that Paul writes down. First, he says to walk in wisdom. Paul tells us we are to conduct our lives in a way that matters. I think we can put it even more explicitly here. How I conduct my life reveals my heart's greatest treasure. How you interact with people speaks volumes to what your heart most values and most treasures. If you are rude or impatient or just downright mean to those that you encounter on a daily basis, then you are indirectly making a statement about what matters most to you. It is an indirect form of evangelism for the God of self. What matters most to me is not the God who graciously gave himself up for me, but instead rather the Lord of my life, myself. How you are conducting your life reveals your heart's greatest treasure. The same is true if your life is consumed with efficiency or with finances or with material goods. How you conduct your life, how you are living your life, makes a statement about what matters most to you. And in this example, it's stuff. Again, this is an indirect form of evangelism. This time, the God that Jesus, the God that Jesus calls mammon in the Gospels. What matters most to us is not the God who gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but instead the things that we can accumulate in this life. How you conduct your life reveals your heart's greatest treasure. Again, the same thing can be said if you are generous toward others. If you are thoughtful, caring, selfless, not self-promoting, if you're genuinely concerned with the good of those around you, even at great cost to yourself, the world will watch. The world will notice. The world will notice what your life says about you and about your heart's greatest treasure. This doesn't mean that you don't fail. It doesn't mean that you never mess up. But what is the trajectory of your life? Does your life declare that your greatest treasure is God? Or does it declare that there's one of many gods that our culture offers to us? Next, Paul mentions to make the best use of time. Paul reminds us that not only does our contact, conduct matter, but also how we spend our time. And again, I think we can put this even more explicitly. How I steward my time reveals my heart's greatest treasure. What do you do with your time when you have discretionary time? Do you spend every single waking moment that you are able to do so at the gym? Do you spend every single moment that you have free on your phone or on your computer or on the couch in front of the television? Do you spend all of your time thinking about sports or your favorite hobby? Hobbies are good. Rest is good. Staying healthy is good. Turning your brain off to be entertained can be good. But what does the trajectory of how you spend your time say about your heart's greatest treasure? Are you actively seeking out opportunities to serve others? 
Are you actively seeking out relationships, interacting with others, getting to know others? What does your time say about your heart's greatest treasure? One final word from Paul. He says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. You see, not only does our conduct matter, not only does our time matter, but our tongue matters as well. How I speak reveals my heart's greatest treasure. This goes beyond making sure you don't swear. It goes much deeper than that. If someone had a 10-minute conversation with you, and they had to judge or decide, decide, evaluate your life on that 10-minute discussion, what would they say is your heart's greatest treasure? Now, let's be honest. Some of us are saying, well, I'm not very good at conversations with new people. That's me. I'm not very good at that. So we take this literally, then I guess that people would say that my heart's greatest treasure is the weather because that's all I can talk about with other people. Fair enough. But let's go even deeper than that. When you talk about the weather, or when you talk about the current political climate, or just the the climate of of our world today, is your speech one of gratitude? Is it one of thanksgiving? Or is it cynical? When your words turn to the current political state or the current state of affairs in the Middle East, there's so much to be cynical and pessimistic over. But is it seasoned with grace? Is it seasoned with a heart of thanksgiving? Does it have a rock-solid confidence in the sovereignty of God that shines through? You see, no matter the content of your speech, of your speech the heart behind it can speak volumes. You can speak about weather, you can speak about sports, your kids, the community, anything, and it can say much about your heart's greatest treasure by the posture of your heart behind the words that you speak. It doesn't matter what the content of your speech is. If you have a heart of gratitude, a heart of praise, a heart of confidence in the reign of Jesus, then you will be presented with opportunities to make explicit the gospel. That's what Paul mentions here in verse 6 when he says that you may know how how you ought to answer each person. You see, how you conduct your life, how you spend your time, how you use your tongue, all of these are opportunities for us to participate in the spread of the gospel. Being a faithful witness here and now will present you with opportunities to share the gospel here and now in your daily life, if only we look for those things. So how will you respond to God's calling? As we come to the end of Paul's letter, Paul has given his final charge to the church in Colossae, and then he closes in the final few verses with some final greetings and some words of encouragement for the people in Colossae. It's easy to skip over these, but it's important for us not to do so because I think that they give us a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to participate in the spread of the gospel through prayer, what it looks like for us to participate in the spread of the gospel through a faithful witness, a faithful presence here and now. They show us what it means to be clothed with Christ. So let's take a few moments and read these verses, starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. 
He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and, how, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Here in these verses, Paul mentions 10 people, either those who are in Rome or those who are in Colossae, and will be receiving this letter. Let's just spend a few seconds, 15 seconds, looking at each name so we can see real flesh and blood examples of what it looks like for us to participate in the spread of the gospel through prayer and faithful witness. Paul first mentions Tychicus. He was a convert of Paul during his ministry in Ephesus and was without a doubt the carrier of the letter to the church in Colossae. We know from other parts of the New Testament that he also traveled on Paul's behalf to Ephesus and most likely to visit Titus in Crete. Now, lest we just think that he is Paul's errand boy, he would have been considered immeasurably faithful, immeasurably trustworthy in order for Paul to trust him and to represent him to the church in Colossae. Paul trusts Tychicus because of his faithful service. You see, we don't have any, any words recorded in the New Testament or in church history from this man. We have no record of him going on to becoming a great church leader after Paul's death, but he participated in the spread of the gospel through his faithful service by doing what God called him to do, even by carrying a letter. God can use you in the exact same way. The next person mentioned is Onesimus. We're going to talk about Onesimus next week because he's the focus of the letter to Philemon. Uh, it's a story that is, is just marvelous to read. So let's go ahead and skip over him. Uh, let's jump to the next one, Aristarchus. We know from the New Testament, Aristarchus was converted during Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. He traveled with Paul. After that, he was a faithful servant of the gospel and traveled with Paul, did whatever he needed for him. He ended up actually in prison with Paul for the sake of the gospel here in Rome. And we're reminded here in his life that we have great opportunities when we suffer to show what matters most to us. You contrast the life of Aristarchus with a man who's mentioned just a few verses later, Demas, in verse 14. Demas is the only one in this section who was not commended by Paul. And later in 2 Timothy, we see that Demas abandons the faith for a love of the world. You see, when we suffer, when we, whether it's explicitly for the gospel or if it's just because we live in a broken world, we have a chance to respond in a way that brings God glory, that speaks to those around us of the greatness of God with our lives and our lips, 
or like Demas to cower in fear. Next is Mark. Mark is one of my favorite people in the Bible. Uh, Mark is first encountered in the book of Acts on Paul's first missionary journey. He travels with Paul and uh, Mark's cousin Barnabas, but he abandons Paul because uh, he, he just couldn't handle it. He abandons Paul on the first missionary trip. Now, Paul is understandably upset with, uh, with Mark and his lack of faithfulness, and so he refuses to bring him on later missionary journeys. Preaching the gospel was hard work, and Paul wanted to make sure he had people with him he could rely on. Now, we fast forward 12 years to the writing of the book of Colossians. This is our next mention of John Mark. Here we see a man who has ended up in Rome. He was discipled by his cousin Barnabas and most likely the apostle Peter as well. And the mark that Paul encounters here in Rome is far different than the one that he first met 12 years earlier. Mark is now a man who is faithful, who is mature, who is committed to the gospel. Paul's words here are are words of commendation. His subsequent words in 2 Timothy are a powerful picture of the reconciliation that took place between Paul and Mark. It also speaks to the importance of second chances. You see, if you've messed up in your life and you think that you've lost your chance at being a witness to the gospel, the life of John Mark says otherwise. Justice is mentioned. We, we don't know anything about him. Let's take a look at Epaphras, the next one mentioned. Epaphras is the man who planted the church in Colossae. He traveled over a thousand miles to bring word to Paul of the church in Colossae and the surrounding communities. Once he arrived in Rome, he devoted himself to nonstop prayer for the church. If you want an example of how to pray for the spread of the gospel, look no further than Epaphras, a man who wrestled in prayer for those that he loved. Next mentioned is Luke. Luke is the author of Luke and Acts. He's a constant companion of Paul's during the missionary journeys. A bit of a Renaissance man. He was a doctor, a historian, a theologian. He was an intellectual, and he used all of his, godly, all of his gifts given to him from God for others, for the spread of the gospel. Let Luke be a reminder to each of us that whatever gifts God has given us, we can be using them for his glory. After Luke is Demas, and we mentioned him earlier, Demas, uh, after Demas is Nympha, a woman from the nearby city of Laodicea. She is the one who hosted the church of Laodicea in her house. She must have had great financial wealth if she were able to host all of the church, and she used that wealth in order to be a blessing to others and to the church. She viewed all that God had given her as a gift to the church and was a paragon of hospitality in the church. And the last person mentioned is Archippus. From the book of Philemon, we can speculate, and I I emphasize that word speculate, that he was the son of Philemon. He was a member of the church in Colossae, and he was a part of the next generation of the church. He had been identified by the church and set apart by God as one who had the gifts to serve the church in Colossae and beyond. It could be the same for you. Perhaps God has given you future leadership gifts to serve here at Crosswinds or wherever God has called you. Let Paul's words to this man be a reminder 
to use those gifts for God's glory. Paul's words here are clear for us. God has called each of us to participate in the spread of the gospel through diligent prayer, through faithful witness. What you do with your life matters today for the spread of the gospel today. Commit yourself to prayer, to pray for the spread of the gospel, to pray for the gospel to go out clearly and commit to live out a faithful witness in your life and your time and with your speech. Follow the example of those who have gone before us. Even though these people may be lost to history, we can rest assured confidently that their faithfulness has not been lost to God. Won't you join us in participating in the spread of the gospel through prayer and witness? Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would be with us, give us strength, Help us, God, to serve you and to serve others. Help us to be a people of prayer, a people who seek your face, a people who are diligent and persevere to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God, help us to live lives that reflect upon you, to be wise with our lives, with our time, and with our actions and speech. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.